Can you be a science superpower if we're still arguing about what woke means when these people have existed in society for ages and the technology that we're doing is cross barriers and cross boundaries. So you have to build for different types of folks. If we look at AI for good, I don't believe this overriding message of increased productivity should be the center of what good looks like. The issue isn't the girls, the issue is the story that we tell of technology, right? It's the names that we have, it's the faces that they get to see looking back at them from textbooks. From the first-time founders to the funds that back them, innovation needs different. Our episode partner, HSBC Innovation Banking, is proud to accelerate growth for tech and life science businesses, creating meaningful connections and opening up a world of opportunity for entrepreneurs and investors alike. Discover more at www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com en-gb. Hello and welcome to the UKTN podcast, a weekly chat with the movers and shakers of the UK tech industry and the destination for all things UK tech related. And this week, I'm joined by Anne-Marie Imafadon, businesswoman and founder of Stemets, an organisation designed to inspire and support young women, girls and non-binary people in the area of science, technology, engineering and maths. Welcome, Anne-Marie. Hi, Jane. <laughs> Lovely to talk to you. Now, let's start by talking about Stemets. Now, this was founded back in 2013. I think we spoke about it in the very early days of its founding. You're now sort of celebrating your 10-year anniversary. So explain to everybody listening what STEMETS is about, first of all. Sure. So STEMETS is about, we, we call it engaging, informing and connecting girls and young women and non-binary folk with the STEM field, so STEM being science, technology, engineering and maths, but also the STEAM field, which is science, technology, engineering, arts and maths. And for us, that's the real kind of heart of innovation. Everything we do is free for them to attend. It's fun for them to be at. And there's food involved because because <laughs> why, why do all of this on an empty stomach? Really, it's been about helping to shift those social norms for girls, young women, non-binary folk, but also those around them, their influences, whether that's their peers, their parents and their teachers to see that, to see all that's possible but maybe also all that they might not have seen or understood is kind of within the realm of what different types of folks can do across the technical fields. And I'm guessing that some of those people that came through your programme back in 2013 are now out there kind of spreading the message. Um, Have you seen a, a lot of change, I guess, in the thing that you were trying to alter, the fact that there weren't enough girls and, and young women going into sort of STEM has that changed in the 10 years since you've been running this programme? So it's definitely changed. I think there's there's definitely a piece of it that we get to, that I'm privileged actually to be able to see in our alumni. So whether it's those who, you know, have, were really young when they started with us and have made really key decisions in our presence almost that have now ended up at these big companies and are, you know, thriving in their STEM, their technical, their scientific, their engineering careers, but are also then coming back to say, I'm going to, you know, be a partner on this end. You know, they're speaking now as the role models at the events rather than being the the kids eating the food, although the role models do also get to eat the food. But I think what we've also seen across the generation is a different sense of what success in this space looks like. And I think that's one of the most heartening things is that, yes, we're trying to shift the social norm of who does tech, 
and who does STEM and who does the innovation, but also what does good look like and what does success look like in this field? And I think there's definitely been a huge shift where, yeah, sharing your story, being that role model, bringing others into the fold is seen as much as part of success as, I don't know, making making the money or building something super cool. And I'm really, really heartened to see that influence as well over the last 10 years. And role models are a huge uh, part of this, isn't it? Because one of the problems is that the pipeline gets narrower and narrower. Girls will be very enthusiastic about science and maths when they're at primary school. And then when it comes to choosing their sort of options for GCSEs or A-levels, they sort of lose heart with that. Have you kind of come up with any reasons why that would make that that would be now that you're kind of working in this sphere what what is it about girls that that means they they decide not to specialize in these subjects well it's the environment that they're in right it's the space that they're in as part of our 10th birthday celebrations at the top of the year we did a survey with the british science association and found that one in three young people of any gender haven't hadn't heard about a woman scientist at all in school over the last two years and so there is something of it's the the issue isn't the girls the issue is the story that we tell of technology right it's the names that we have it's the faces that they get to see looking back at them from textbooks uh, or in in the curriculum or on posters that they might have on, on walls in the school but also what we have in the kind of media from hollywood from tv and all the rest of it and so these are these are not stories that, that we're able to tell and so there's almost this kind of negative reinforcement that goes on throughout their lifetimes, it's still something that's not just about girls and their GCSE options. It's also about women, right, going through their careers who are also trying to look up at what the C-suite looks like, right, what their investors look like, what the folks that are head of their departments and their academic institutions look like, and they're not seeing themselves there. Uh, But it's also the people that then make those decisions on who do we recruit, who do we promote, who do we fund, who also then don't see that as a vision of success or a vision of innovation. And so don't fund, don't choose, don't promote, and don't set up environments where they can thrive. And so we, we see this, as you said, kind of across that that pipeline, as it were, but also it's not just about the pipeline, right? You should be able to, and you are able to enter technical careers from different points that you have career converters, right? You have folks who are, who are coming back in, you have apprenticeships, you have boot camps, you have all manner of entry points. And so I think it is also about respecting the folks that come in, ensuring that there are those entry points so we can value different types of folks in our technical spaces. And so all of that works together. It's, I, I think it's almost a, a misnomer or a red herring to focus purely on the number of folks that do GCSE computer science, because that's a privilege in and of itself with the provision that we see across the system. And so it's, no, what, what are we doing to allow and to value those different perspectives the whole way through the chain? Because let's face it, you know, you're you're talking to folks on a weekly basis. Many of them won't have touched a computer science chief GSE and yet are leading the industry. And so we know that there's value in all manner of different routes, not just the decisions that folks make at 13, which unfortunately are still impacting them uh, at the, by the time that they're 22, 23. And I guess that comes back to what you mentioned earlier, this idea that it's no longer STEM, it's STEAM, arts being a very important part of the, the whole kind of um, ecosystem, especially I think in tech, in terms of you know who designs things and 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 you know who has a say in the room. What do you think is kind of the biggest impact of getting that A into Steam in terms of the tech industry specifically? Yeah, so the biggest impact it is around that innovation and, and and the way I see it or look at it, that kind of the art and design, art and design, you know, as a, as a computer scientist <laughs> without that kind of classical art training. 
art and design and music and all the rest of them are about understanding and they're about expression. And when we're building these products, when we're building these services, when we're building these tools, when we're building the algorithms, when we're, you know, building models, whatever it might be, you need to have an understanding of the human beings that you're, you're building them for, that you're building them around, that you're that you're delivering them to, in order to truly make sure that it's a product that, that is making sense and is hitting, hitting where it needs to. But you also need to be able to express what the problem is that you're solving, how this works, what the impact is going to be, where this might fit into their existing processes and their existing lives. And, you know, the, the big example that everyone always goes back to is Apple, right? Apple versus, insert name of other tech hardware company here, where that connection that folks had with the devices, it wasn't just about utility and productivity. It was about how it made folks feel. And that was super important for the bottom line, but also super important for the problems that they were able to solve for folks. And yeah, you know, as a classically trained computer scientist, that's not something that was ever really part of our training, part of what we were taught to value and taught to see. But now that's something that we're, we're having to listen to social scientists, we're having to wrap the arts and other disciplines into what we're doing. This isn't purely about deterministic ends. This is about that connection, it's about society, it's about expression, it's about understanding. And you mentioned there your background. So let's talk a little bit about that because you were doing this stuff at a very young age, right? I've been obsessed with databases since I was 10. We did a data dive late last year and I had an absolute ball talking about like third normal form and all the rest of that with folks, with them just being astounded that I was still so clinging to the theory and the practice. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I, I had two GCSEs by the time I left primary school, one in maths, one in ICT. A-level in computing at 11, left Oxford with my master's in maths and computer science, computer science by the time I was 20. And I was fully on this rocket ship. I was like, this is me. This is my space. I absolutely love the reliability more than anything about, you know, multiplication just works. This isn't writing an English essay where, you know, the, the, I have to make up and you read between the lines. <laughs> There's no reading between the lines. Like you read the lines, you read the comments and you get on with it. And I've always, always loved that about technology and the repeatability about it. But I think, you know, the older you get, the more you tap into life, the more you realise that life is more complicated than maths. And if you're going to be useful, you have to take that into account. But presumably as well, one of the reasons you set up STEMETS was that during that sort of journey, enthusiastic as you were about spreadsheets and maths and databases, you were seeing inequality. And was that personal to you? No. So I, so I actually wasn't. And this is the thing that I kind of look back and, and I laugh, right? It, it, I studied STEMETS 10 years ago because 11 years ago, I realised I was a woman in tech. <laughs> I also realised I was a black woman in tech in the same moment. I was like, my goodness, what does this mean? I'm part of a shrinking minority. Oh, wow. On, on my course, there were 70 of us in computer science lectures and there were only three of us that were girls. You know, and most of the exams I did, I was the only girl because I did three and a half maths A-levels in the end. And when you start getting some of those modules, it's very few of you anyway. And so, you know, and so it was really funny looking back at that point and thinking, my goodness, Amri, you really were just looking at the databases. So smart on one hand, but really not very perceptive in, a, in other ways. And so I started STEMETS because it's not right. It doesn't make me a better computer scientist that I didn't notice those. In fact, it probably makes me a worse computer scientist that I didn't, I didn't spot that trend. But also that I was really fortunate to have so many positive, formative STEM experiences that have meant that whatever I might have uh, come up against as a woman in tech, a black woman in tech in the, in the industry, I'm still going to stay. I'm not going anywhere else. It's such a core part of who I am and what I know I'm good at that you shouldn't have to be as unperceptive as Amory to, to be able to thrive in this space, but also why not give more folks positive, formative 
STEM experiences and STEAM experiences because it, it matters so much. I mean, one of my favourite uh, examples of this from the last couple of years was we were up in Chorley in the north of England um, running a hack with a, with, a, with a company who did a lot of work with the NHS and ended up doing kind of health tech hack for, for children. And they were building apps around kind of managing your health. And we had two five-year-olds who'd met each other at the, the hack and had managed to get apples to talk in their app. And it was the funniest <laughs> thing to them. And uh, we do a demo day, as you would at any given hack. And they just giggled through their three minutes. It was, they, and all of us were in stitches. But how amazing that that was two little girls coming together, building apples that were talking to and strawberries, I think, were involved as well. But that's a really positive thing, which I think, you know, how, how amazing for that to be a core memory for them as five-year-olds. No one can say you can't do that. No one can say you can't have fun with the tech. Because at five, they were doing that in front of a room of 60 other young people who had come and spent the weekend doing that too. HSBC Innovation Banking, our partner for this episode, provides commercial banking services, expertise and insights to the technology, life science and healthcare, private equity and venture capital industries. To find out why innovation needs different, go to www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com slash en gb. And it, despite all these amazing initiatives, the figures sort of seem to remain pretty samey. You know, I've been talking about this issue for 20 years now. You've been involved in it for 10. And yet you look at women in tech and maybe it's gone up a few percent, but it's still tiny, isn't it? Is it just going to take many, many, many years to get the equity that we're seeking? I don't think it's too late for us to see the right kind of change. The day I think it is too late, I'm hunkering down in the bunker and, you, and I'll leave you all to kind of fight it out for yourselves. But I think I think there has been elements of progress, but I think the some of the progress has then unlocked other things that we need to work on further up the chain. And, and it was why, you know, earlier on I was talking about, you know, this not just being about young people and young women making those decisions at 13, but so much of the other work that I do, the other boards, the other things that I'm involved with, are also about making sure it's an environment they're going to stay and thrive in. And I think also our measure and our understanding of what the tech industry is. So I remember this when we started STEMETS, there was a number from WISE that we had that was kind of 13% of those across STEM. And now it's kind of in the 20s, kind of mid-20s. And it's interesting that we've had to now say core STEM and that definition of where tech is and where tech isn't has also kind of moved. And so I think where there has been progress, it's been hard to be able to say, is the progress in computer science sign-ups? Is the progress in the number of people present in the industry? Is the progress in folks that are in leadership? Is the progress in the pay gap? Is the progress in the stay gap? Is the progress in uh, proportions of folks that are C-suite? You know, in, in investors, who are investors who are LPs versus who is being invested in, right? And that's definitely one we can see we've gone backwards. And so I think it's something of, it will take time to see the nature of change, but also we're not changing this in a vacuum. We're changing it in a society in an industry, in an economy that's also shifting. And so we have to be mindful of not just thinking it's going to be a linear, we're just going to have the number higher. There are more factors, I think, than that that we need to recognise. But I think the, the the difference I will say in the last 10 years is when I started, there was reticence from even some kind of really big, well-known non-profits of, is this something, is this a problem to be solved? Is, is you know, why? And now I'm finding, I'm being asked why almost none of the time it's more that we've moved almost to lip service of folks pretending that this is something that they care about. We're actually behind the scenes, seeing them doing kind of very much the opposite. And I think that's where 
we really need to then also continue to shift the dial. Let's move on and talk about sort of the wider industry. And you mentioned earlier AI, which is obviously the subject on everybody's lips at the moment. As we record this, the AI summit hasn't taken place. You've been kind of involved in this in terms of you've signed a letter to the government a while ago talking about how it's very important that we see AI as a force for good. Obviously, we've seen a lot of headlines very much (laughs) focusing on the negative aspects of AI. So, you know, what, what is it that you hope we achieve with this technology in the short term in terms of making sure that it is a force for good? So what I hope we achieve, there's a, there's a lot of things that I'm hoping that we're able to achieve in the short term, the medium term, and then the long term. I think the long term is almost the easiest one to say, which is that we don't kill each other by accident and that we end up solving problems at a faster rate than we're creating them. Like that, that would ultimately be what I'm hoping for, not just for AI specifically, but for, for tech in general, and that we have a legacy that we're proud of. I think in the short term, we need more of these guardrails, more of these guidelines, and more support for folks that are working through it at the moment. And I think, again, this is a really great example, where as computer scientists, we've been working on trying to make this happen. There are loads of social scientists that have been working on trying to make sure that it's done safely and in a way that's kind of contextualized in society and so there are a lot of folks we need to be looking to we need to be learning from we need to be listening to who have been doing this since the 60s if not the 70s when there was a kind of a realization that this could become real maybe within our lifetimes so i think you know the idea that it's you know the summit's focused on safety i think is fantastic that's what we need for it to be for good but i think there's something guardrails i'm a trustee the institute for the future of work we've had something for a couple of years now called the good work charter that's been like at least in the workplace these are the ideas these are the frameworks these are the challenges we want to set to you on deploying this for good, a 10-point definition for what good looks like, which involves well-being, which involves learning, which involves dignity for folks who are workers. And I think what I'm hoping for in the short term is whatever government that we have in the next 12 to 18 to maybe 24 months are able to really get their hands in with governing, you know, in the, in the realist sense rather than politicking, and then making sure that businesses, that civil society, third sector, public sector, academia, everyone has the right structures to say this is what good is going to look like and here's how we're going to be able to define it and then hold you accountable. At the moment, I don't know that there's been strong enough leadership to ensure that that's happening kind of system-wide and there seems to be a lot of dilly-dallying and maybe posturing to commercial interests rather than looking at what the social and societal interest should be. If we look at AI for good, I don't believe this overriding message of increased productivity should be the centre of what good looks like. Productive humans is not really what, <laughs> like, is where are we having the more hu- humane? Where, where is humanity in all of this? And I don't see a lot of humanity in that in that productivity discourse. So, so what does good look like from your perspective then? So good looks like solving more problems than we're creating. Good looks like ensuring that you're not reinforcing existing power structures and, and making folks more marginalised that were already historically marginalised and, uh, you know, empowering folks that already are operating from those power bases and already operating from a position of privilege. Good looks like, you know, there's so many harms, so many problems that we have at the moment, so many things that are actually taking a modern approach and using data not on making decisions on human beings, but making decisions on things around <laughs> human beings, making decisions on, on buildings and all the rest of it. You know, and saying, actually, that's what we're going to do because we know that that's going to be able to be safe rather than saying we've got enough data on these human beings. So we're going to make decisions on humans alone, you know, with an algorithm alone where it's like, well, no, we don't. We're not able to do that in analog. How are we trusting that we can digitalize that and do that at scale, you know, and, and, and accelerate a lot of those harms? So I think that's what good looks like. I think good looks like choosing 
problems that really are problems, impactful problems for the many, not problems for the few, and prioritizing that in the in the decisions that we make on the rollouts that we have, which again, at the moment, that's not, that's not what's happening. It's not what's going on. It's not what's happening. And what does seem to be happening is that AI has been not hijacked exactly, but it's very much in the control of the big tech companies because they're the ones that have developed in the case of large language models. You know, they've put all the research and they've got the money in order to, to, to design these systems. And now, once again, we're seeing this tech being rolled out by these big, powerful tech companies. And whilst I'm sure there's lots going on in the startup scene, it doesn't really feel that the power balance there is right. So in order to do to um, fulfill what, what you talk about, for good, don't we need to, to grapple this technology away from the hands of big tech, which has historically been a very difficult thing to do? This is the open source versus kind of kind of pr- proprietary uh, debate that's raging in the background, right, of w- which is going to win out. And I'm a little bit pessimistic on that end. I think there's also something there with realising and recognising that a large language model does a lot of things with a huge data set for a lot of people. And most use cases that we want to look at when we talk about for good don't involve using a large language. Like you, you're almost taking a sledgehammer to a nut, right? And so there are smaller versions. There are more open source versions if you want. There are lower budget implications and applications that we can be exploring and developing and leveraging without having to necessarily rely on big tech to make those decisions. But of course, as a government, you know, if you're governing, there's a little bit of leverage that you might have over what those big tech folks are doing. And, you know, I think I think there is something of really making a stand, right? really being bold with the decisions that we're making in terms of governance and also ensuring that, that those in power, those in parliament, those in those kind of at the top have the right kind of support. I think there's still so much of a poor digital literacy before we even talk about AI literacy for our lawmakers. And that's still a big frustration I have. I'm trying to teach kids this. Who's trying to teach the adults? I mean, ages ago, I remember on stages for a while, I was saying, I think we need to have like a digital literacy test for folks before they're able to assume, you know, positions in government. It's like, actually, does that need to be something we still, that we bring in even more so? Because it's almost dangerous to say you're looking after us and you don't really understand, I don't know, what encryption looks like, right? Or you don't really understand. I mean, most of it really ends up being security, right? Because that's the kind of the, the state of play that we're in. But if you don't really understand what the algorithm is, or if you don't have a basic understanding of statistics, how are you truly able to make decisions that aren't then going to end up, you know, coming back to bite us later on? And apart from the lack of tech literacy, what else do you think that government needs to be doing? Let's talk specifically about AI, but I mean, obviously, this could be accountable for a lot of other parts of tech. Understanding it is, a, is the start, right? But then assuming, and it's a big assumption that they do sort of understand it, or they've asked the right people and they've explained it properly to them, what then do you think government needs to do? Then I think government needs to look at the bodies that they do and don't have at their disposal and what it, what effects already have. So with the Institute for Future of Work, there was, there was a fair amount of work we did early on about I don't know, something like um, inequality that's perpetuated by some, of the, by some of the algorithms that we see, how much is that covered by the Equalities Act? Like how, like how much do, in the systems and the, and, the, and the frameworks that we already have, do our principles, our values, right, what good looks like, as, as was defined in the old world, how much of that re- is reflected in what's in, in there now? And so I think having those systems, if we're going to put the guardrails, they have, we have to be able to enact them. We have to be able to hold folks accountable. We have to have some kind of teeth in, in any of those. I think that the next piece then would be how do we ensure that we are that we are also kind of getting a lot of folks, we're getting most folks educated, and again not reinforcing those who are marginalised. 
And I think there's a lot of scope for kind of incentivizing lifelong learning was another one that we end up, ended up having at the Institute. I think ended up in the Labour manifesto at the last election. And I think the current government have done have actually done a fair whack, right, on trying on building boot camps, right, and building capacity for learning. But I think there's so much further that we need to go on learning as a culture in this country. If we're going to be serious about being a science superpower, then, you know, we, we can't just, it can't just be that folks that have been to particular universities and done particular courses and research in particular places are the only ones that hold that science knowledge. We have to have the infrastructure. There's one, one big tech company is talking about having a national skill service alongside the national health service. But I think definitely that idea of educating the masses and having the cultural change around that is going to be something that a government's going to have to do. Because I think as much as, again, we look to government to, to look after us, I think actually having an informed and educated, illiterate society is going to help in a lot of places and a lot of spaces for us to then see this good from all angles and come up from all manner of, manner of places, rather than it being big tech only, academic spaces only, government only. And you mentioned their science powerhouse, which obviously is a bit of po- political posturing, as usual, always wanting to be the best at everything and putting a date on when they're when they're hoping to achieve it. I think in this case, it's something like 2030. Do you think that is achievable? And what does being a powerhouse in science and technology look like to you? Oh, my goodness. What a political question, Jane. I'm trying to get me in trouble. <laughs> I mean, it's only achievable if you act, if you act as if it's something you want to achieve. You know, by 2030, you know, so as part of our 10-year celebrations, We've had we've held a series of roundtables across Newcastle, uh, Coventry, and London, Stamets, trying to get women's names mentioned in the science curricula for GCSE and A level science uh, subjects. It's been like pulling teeth. Such a simple, small suggestion. You said you've been doing this for twenty years. I've been doing it for ten years. I remember when we started, every week there'd be two papers from an APPG, someone had done, and role models, right, has been the, everyone's been singing with this, right, for decades. We still don't have that necessarily reflected in our curriculum. That's not a new idea, and it's something that's very much not live. So can you be a science superpower if you don't incentivize having great research cultures? You know, can you be a science superpower if you don't have teachers that want to stay in schools for longer than a term? because of what the situation is? Can you be a science superpower if you ignore outputs and research that hasn't come from the West? You know, Can you be a science superpower if we're still arguing about what woke means when these people have existed in society for ages and the technology that we're doing is cross barriers and cross boundaries? So you have to build for different types of folks if you are going to have that global influences you're hoping to do can you be a science superpower if everything just goes to commercial interests and goes to commercial funding and nothing goes to civic right community public sector i don't want to get in trouble because i want it you want to be pragmatic and be a part of solution you know rather than tearing folks down and being frustrated but I, i i don't know that we're acting as if science superpower is really what we're going for i just the words aren't really correlating with the actions i'd say at the moment 80-20 thing, right? I'd I'd say it's about 20% rather than the 80%. Interesting. Now, you also mentioned Future of Work, which you're heavily involved in and talk about a lot. So let's very quickly talk about how you see, you know, COVID changed work for everybody, right? And now technology is changing work too. So when you talk, think about the future of work, what what does it look like to you in, I don't know, 10 years time? 
I was going to say there's, there's a bit of a joke in the question you just asked, right? Because that, that was the thing during COVID. It's like, what's been the biggest driver for dis- digital transformation in your organization in the last year or so? And it's kind of COVID was the lever yes. that everyone all of a sudden realized that you didn't all have to be in the office every day. There's something called Zoom and video cameras and we can kind of do this at distance. The next 10 years, I think we'll have a huge, I don't know whether the shift will be as huge in the next 10 years as it will if we look over a slightly longer horizon. I think anytime I'm in, anytime I'm in any of the discussions or the aura of what we're doing at the Institute for Future of Work, I'm always excited about the nature of how our relationship with work will change. The last industrial revolution, we moved from six-day work work weeks to five-day work weeks, right? My organization was part of the four-day work week pilot last year, and we do a four-day work week at Stemets. So I think that's possibly something we, we will see a lot more in the next 10 years because we've already, we've already seen it in the last 12 to 18 months. I'm hoping... I'm really, I'm hoping that we will get to see a lot more of, a lot more of that kind of idea of, of skilling, reskilling, upskilling and education coming into the workplace and folks understanding that there's a transition and there's a move in and there's a change in the nature of work that they are able to partake in, they're able to see and they're able to drive somewhat rather than it's something being something that happened to them. The example we'll have is not long ago, right? You supermarkets, there was a huge, there was a huge kind of resistance to this idea of self, kind of self-scan because folks didn't feel that that was part of the decision that they were making. Whereas now with the work that we're doing, at least we're getting to see unions and other folks being a part of what that change looks like. And it's not just around the technology, but it's like, what is the nature of work? Employee, employee ownership is another thing we're seeing quite a lot of. So I think on the nature of, of our relationship with work We'll be we'll, we'll see the beginning of that transforming. I think that's the biggest one. I mean, we look back, we look back a generation, and it's you used to have a job for life, right? And and not just a job for life, but I remember doing work in Wales in 2018, 2017, with kids, you know, having part their identity being that they're the children of miners. With me thinking, the mines closed a very long time ago. That that's was not just your ancestors' work, but now has become a part of your identity even here and now in this decade is what an interesting relationship with work, right? When I graduated, it was that the the thing was that I was going to have six jobs in my (laughs) career, right? Rather than a job for life. And now, you know, you're laughing already because what what, what are we looking at for Gen Z and Gen Alpha? What even is a job, right? And I think that's what we're going to start to see is our relationship to work. What do you do? If you have an extra day off, what do you do? Right. Who who is afforded this? If you know, and even across the pilot, it wasn't just office folks. There was a chip shop that was part of the four day work week pilot, right? And so I think the relationship we have with work is going to be one of the biggest things that, that transforms. I do think there's going to be a lot of friction and a lot of eggs broken. In the meantime, I do worry and I'm concerned about some of the impacts for workers, for workers' rights, and all the rest of it that we're going to see a lot of uncomfortableness and a lot of bad things happening before we can then correct and come back on whatever the newer version of, of universal basic income is going to look like. I feel like there's a more nuanced version on the horizon that we will all be able to partake. And maybe we have a little bit more of that redistribution of wealth having happening as a result of trying to change in ways that we work. But, you know, I don't know. I, we know it's not true from history that more technology coming in means less for humans to do. In fact, we know it's the opposite. The more that we bring in technology and leverage it, the more human beings we need. And so I, I think that's that's my summary, I, I guess, of what, what comes next. Well, lots of food for thought there. I can't let you go. We've only got like seconds left. But as somebody that very rarely gets the number question or countdown, I have to ask you what it was like <laughs> to be on countdown. It was an experience and a half. I'll tell you that. When you do math at university, firstly, there's not very many numbers. 
Secondly, <laughs> you have all the time in the world to think through, to do, to make, to collaborate. Countdown was, was nothing like that. Also, you've got a TV cameras everywhere, include like on either shoulder, bright lights. You've got someone yelling ISO in your ear, which till today, I still don't really know what ISO means. Like there's so many things beyond the maths was the easiest part of it. I think I could say, right? You have to, it, it, it's one of those, you know, if you're ever counting something and someone starts shouting random numbers at you, sometimes it feels like that because then you have to check. You don't have to work it out yourself. Don't just work it out yourself. You then have to check two people's a maximum, right? And leave space, you know? And so there's all these things happening in a really short period of time that isn't really the main part of what's happening when you're recording. So it's so funny. I always say, I say that to Rachel. I saw her last week and I was like, I, I'm, I only did it because I knew there was an end and I'm very glad that that, that was what I did. <laughs> but also kudos to you for, for d- turning up and doing this all the time. Do you know, and I'm, I'm ruining the magic of TV a little bit. We filmed five episodes a day for three days on the trot. Wow. That's a lot of maths. A lot of maths, a lot of maths late at night. But, you know, it was, it was absolutely hilarious. I did eight out of 10 cats does countdown as well. And that was, that was, that was hilarious to film. Definitely kind of one of those things that you, you kind of keep, keep for the memoir and all the rest of it, but super exciting. And I still judge folks that saw me because it was on at 10 past two every day on channel four. Definitely other things you should have been doing at 10 past two on any given work though. In a quiet way, it's been doing its own work for women in STEM for many, many years. And black (laughs) women in STEM at that, that was, that was the big thing that I think was the most, was the most telling, probably one of the biggest lessons, not necessarily for me, but for others who do know me and, and know different, different women across the industry was the response to that, the backlash and then the counter backlash was so loud. And the number of really great messages that I got from folks saying, oh, you know, I'm so sorry this is happening with me saying, do you know what? I've been yeah. a black woman for 30, for 30 years now. None of this really is new. It might be the first time you're getting to see it and getting to notice it. But actually, you, a lot of these things happen in private and don't get to happen in public. And so it's like, what, what are the lessons that we can all learn for who we're supporting and not supporting as they go through life and turn up in different spaces where folks might have an allergy? That's why I say that, that, they, that we didn't realise how many of the British public had an allergy to seeing black women doing maths on TV. Wow, I'm shocked to hear that, but probably not surprised. As we're uh, recording this, it's Black History Month. Your thoughts on that quickly? So Black History Month has been, I'm really fortunate that it's been a part of my life since primary school. So we celebrated it in primary school every single year. This year's theme for the month has been saluting our sisters. And it's been really heartening, actually, to see the number of folks that we have been able to shout out, we have been able to celebrate. There's loads of posters that run around schools, loads of billboards, and it's felt really, really lovely. I think I definitely have noticed, and I don't know if we call this misogynoir, so all of a sudden it's gone negative again. But, you know, I I I definitely noticed it's been a bit quieter with folks maybe, you know, maybe maybe spending time to learn about the black women that they may or may not be aware of who have, you know, created all manner of things that we get to use every day in our lives. Someone like Gladys West, who I had on for my Radio 4 takeover at the top of the year, um, you know, somebody, you know, there's so many folks who I know you'll have had on the podcast as well that have been celebrated this month. So it's been lovely. It's been lovely to get random messages from folks being like, oh, my kids saw you all in this school or Nico was up on the billboard. So yeah, Black History Month is always an important one. But I think we should remember that we're, we're Black not just in October, but also year round. So yeah, and again, another opportunity to reflect on what we are doing for our sisters in the industry.
And that is a much more positive place to end. <laughs> Thank you, Amory, for joining me. It's really, really always amazing to chat to you. Thank you. And thanks to everyone who's listening. And remember, you can keep up to date with the latest UK tech developments at www.uktech.news. Don't forget to follow UKTN on LinkedIn and Twitter, where you can also get in touch with me at Jane Wakefield with your comments and suggestions about the show. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. This podcast is brought to you by HSBC Innovation Banking, the power behind the UK's forward thinkers, future makers and leap takers. They're helping to ignite the bold ideas that reshape our world. Go to www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com slash en gb to find out how innovation needs different. Thank you.